Welcome to Trivially Crucial, where we believe every camera angle, comic pain, word choice, and boss battle is important and critical to our lives, no matter how unimportant a story may seem. So, uh, hey, Mandy. Hey, Michael. <laughs> how are you? I'm doing good today. Me too. Me too. I'm uh, excited to talk about a subject that we have discussed at length before, but not quite so intentionally ahead of time. Uh, it's pretty near and dear to your your heart. Yes, indeed it is. <laughs> so, uh, for the listeners, we are going to be discussing sympathetic villains. We're going we're gonna to lead off with Mandy kind of starting to explain what we mean by that, and we will probably talk a while about what we don't mean by that. <laughs> exactly. Um, a sympathetic villain, to me, uh, first off, there, there are two aspects. There are two words there, right? There's sympathetic, so someone uh, I can sympathize with, and a villain. Uh, so, to me, that is someone who is truly bad, um, we, we can use the word evil, but I, I think bad is probably good enough. I, I don't know if yeah, I, I, evil I, is truly necessary. I feel like it's important to indicate that like, what we mean is they are the bad guy. Like, it's not one of those morally gray sort of areas where you know, people will sometimes talk about the fact that uh, you know, in war, it's not, necessarily, like, it's not necessarily true that one side is the bad guy and one side is the good guy because people have their situations that they're fighting for and whatnot. Right. That's not what we're talking about. It's it's the difference between World War One and World War Two, right? Uh, in World War One, there you had an opposition, but were they bad? Nah. Uh, uh, whereas in World War Two, you had an opposition, and I think we can all agree Hitler was bad. Yes. Um, <laughs> so yes, that is exactly the point. A sympathetic villain is not there. There's a difference between a villain and an antagonist. Um, and I think there are plenty of sympathetic antagonists in the world of fiction and, uh, you know, all fictional media and, the, and life. Uh, I think a, a good example uh, close to my heart uh, also is uh, in the Star Wars extended universe. Um, to me, Grand Admiral Thrawn is a sympathetic antagonist, but I do not think he's a villain. Uh, yes, he's an imperial but I think he lacks the true level of badness or evil that um, Darth Vader or the Emperor possessed. I think Thrawn just truly believes in the uh, the Empire. He believes in the virtues of the Empire in terms of organization and what it can provide for the galaxy. Exactly. So, yeah, that, for uh, for those who are not privy to what we were talking about, the uh, the Thrawn trilogy by Timothy Zahn is a... Is it was it really the first major piece of uh, yes. Star Wars extended so it, universe? Material? It was not the first piece, I believe. No, was I think it was the first piece. It was before the comics. Um, so I think it went the Thrawn trilogy, then the those those uh, comics where Luke goes bad and it's crazy and you should never read them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, then it went back to the Jedi Academy trilogy. But yes, that is the Timothy Zahn um, Thrawn trilogy novels, which if you read. No other Star Wars extended universe because a lot of it is terrible. You should read the Thrawn trilogy because they're just good science fiction on their own. But Grand Admiral Thrawn is basically it's post Star Wars and he is um, he is basically the new leader of the Empire, but and, he's not evil. And the, the neat thing about that whole story was the premise that okay, well now that Return of the Jedi happened and the em- the Emperor is dead, that doesn't mean the Empire is actually gone. Like right. there are there is bits and pieces of it left and they're having issues fighting because they're not necessarily united but Thrawn comes back 
reunites the Empire again temporarily until, you know, the good guys put an end to that. Defeat him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, so Thrawn is an antagonist to our heroes, Luke, Leia, and Han, but exactly. he is not a villain. Um, so, yes, I sympathize with him on some level. On other levels, I get what he's doing, but I also think he's completely off base, um, but not a villain. Um, Which means that because we're specifying specifically villains um, instead of antagonists, like this, our whole thing does not, it, it doesn't include people who are, you know, unwilling bad guys or people who are opposing you because of, you know, some kind of hostage situation or some other thing where they're kind of, they're forced to do someone else's doing like that. They also don't really apply. It is right. really someone who you're sympathetic with what caused them to go to become them like become the bad guys themselves, essentially. Um, which that said, there are, you know, that's clearly we're also automatically, you know, you're chopping off anybody, e- even if you can understand what somebody's motivations are, even if somebody's motivations are explained like just because somebody's motives are clear does not mean they're sympathetic either so of course like you know you can have someone who you totally understand what they want but it can be like just greed or some other some other scenario and that's it doesn't matter that we understand it's a matter of whether we're sympathetic to what drove them to what that whatever it is they're doing right and i i i recently love sympathetic villains. And, and I think there is a line there, right? There's the, I sympathize with what you're doing, but I don't get it at all. And I can't, I understand what, there's a line between I understand what you're doing and, oh my gosh, I get what you're doing. And right. I feel like if I was in that situation, I would do the same thing. And I think that's the difference there is uh, I can understand that someone is very greedy or that they're crazy, or, you know, that they come from a crazy life situation. But when I, when there's a villain that when I look at their life and I'm like, wow, if I was in that situation, I would make those exact same decisions. That, that to me is where it crosses the line. Like where I'm like, holy crap. (laughs) Um, though, though there is gray area there. You, you can still sympathize with someone who, you wouldn't necessarily make those decisions. Well, and there are definitely people who are, they're in those, I mean, one example would be, you already, we already mentioned uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn from the Star Wars Extended thing, and you said, well, you can sort of sympathize with him, and I really can't, but I understand his motivations, you know? So I would almost say, like, okay, I understand his motivations, I understand the reasoning, I don't really think that that's a, like, a reasonable train of thought to follow. Um, Right. And I think he's, perhaps wrong in what the benefits are, but I understand why he thinks the way he does, which is different from a sympathetic villain, which is, okay, like, this is a very clear, like, clear path that you took, and there maybe could be points at which you could have chosen not to give in, but it was a very clear sort of a... A lot of the time, it's almost like a a very clear fall from grace. Like, you can see how it happened. Right, Um, right, indeed. Um... And uh, I actually think that a lot of the time, and we'll we'll probably touch on this later, but a lot of the time it is these sympathetic villains who also pose as the most believably redeemable villains. Like, if you want to have some kind of arc later on down the line where they might be able to be brought back because you see them as, 
human. I mean, even if the character isn't human, but you see them as a person who, like, because you can see what their motivations were and what brought them down, you might be able to eventually see their path to coming back. Um, right. And that is something where the, the force of nature type enemies, which are, you know, your Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars or your Voldemorts or your Voldemorts or the Joker from, you know, the, the recent, uh, uh, from Dark Knight, uh, from the Dark Knight, like those are sort of force of nature things and they're irredeemable villains, right? They're just, they are, right. they're, they're supposed to be bad incarnate almost or chaos incarnate or some other sort of thing. They're, so I always felt Voldemort was a serious missed opportunity. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, we don't need to go off down that road. Well, uh, so there is actually a reason specifically that I brought up the force of nature type villains. And I think that a lot of the time too, you'll see these sympathetic villains playing as sort of the second string to one of those force of nature villains. Like whether or not the temptation that was brought to them that helped drag them down was because of that primary evil or not, a lot of the time they end up working out as, you know, as real villains who are assistance to the to the overall power sometimes they end up helping the sometimes they do end up getting redeemed and help bring down that opposing force and sometimes they don't and it's you know they go down with them but it's they they even sometimes play as a cautionary tale to the hero you know and that that's Indeed. A, there's a lot of a lot of really clever ways of using the sympathetic villain so we can continue on and i suppose we can actually talk about some examples and talk about how uh, how they fit into the the definition and how they're used and what what sort of scenarios like what makes certain people or certain characters sympathetic to us and and uh, how that affects the stories that they're in. Indeed, um, and um, I, I know that there is a very specific example that Mandy wanted to talk about, and uh, for those listening, you may have uh, heard that we mentioned it several times during our our previous recording, and uh, that means that today Mandy gets to talk about Thor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, if, if you listen closely, you'll know it's not because I have any particular love for the character of Thor, but it's because I am an unabashed Loki fangirl. Um, and there, there are a lot of reasons for that, and one of them is because he, to me, Loki is not just a sympathetic villain. He is an empathetic villain and the difference there is sympathy is something you you understand and get uh empathy is something that i feel like i've experienced that um so i feel like i have been in loki's situation um and if anything loki has served as a moral in my own life on not how to on how to not behave um so the character of loki is well, first off, he's incredibly nuanced, and the movie, the way it's created, is confusing on that aspect. I think when people watch it the first time, they don't see it. So I highly encourage you to go back and watch it a second time, knowing what you know from the first viewing. Um, but the, the whole how they create Loki as a character from the beginning it's almost like they've developed Loki so you will sympathize with him. Uh, the way they write the whole storyline. Um, first off, they start with Loki and Thor as kids. And uh, you, it establishes a couple of quick things. It establishes that Loki is a thinker and Thor is a kid who just wants to do stuff. Um, he just wants to beat people up. And Loki's the one asking the serious questions like, are the Frost Giants still real? Like, uh, and Thor's like, I'm just going to beat them all up. Um, 
Second off, it establishes that these are two kids who really do love each other. Um, and that, I mean, they, they establish that with a look and a smile. But it also establishes that they're in competition with each other, which is never a good situation to have. Only one of you can be king. Yes, yes. that's great parenting, Odin. Great, <laughs> great parenting. Um, and then skipping forward, our first intro into adult Loki, I wish it was the cutscene, but it's not. So I'm not going to talk about the cutscene as much as I love it. Uh, there is an earlier cutscene between Thor and Loki that is fantastic that I highly urge you to go watch. Um, <laughs> but the, your first glimpse of him is him just being all like rejected on the day that Thor is crowned. Like the first camera angle on Tom Hiddleston's face shows him looking downcast. Like his eyes are literally on the ground while everyone else is focused on Thor. Which is totally something that basically everyone should be able to sympathize with to some degree or another. Right. Like, here's the sibling getting all this attention, and what do I get? Nothing. You know? (laughs) Even if you're an only child, there's some scenario where someone who you do regard, maybe in some sort of high regard, and you were competing with, they got some bit of recognition, and you wanted some, and you didn't get it. I mean, everyone has experienced that. Indeed. Uh, I... The next scene, the scene where Loki actually first talks, to me, this is the scene that cements it Well, in many ways. Okay, there are a couple other scenes. But he, <laughs> Thor is in this super rage. He throws the table, and Loki just kind of walks up and sits next to him to comfort his brother. And yes, we later learned that Loki was the cause of the disruption. But when... Thor says, it's not wise to be in my presence right now, brother. Today was to be my day of triumph. And Loki says, it'll come in time. I think he is a completely 100% telling the truth there. And I think you can tell. Because uh, Loki w- knew he was never going to be king. It was always going to be Thor. And he was just trying to delay it. Um, you know, one last trick before Thor could become king. But the way he says that tone with such resignation and... Uh, Sheer acceptance and just, like, sadness. You're just like, man. It does not seem like a phrase coming from someone who is intending to totally mess up everything. Like, it's more of just a... Yeah, like you said, it's someone who's trying to make a point while he still can, because soon there's not really going to be the opportunity to do so. Right. To me, that that, that that line alone, what is it, four words, it'll come. In time. What Loki was really saying is, I'm a real complex person. (laughs) Like, I'm real, I'm complex, you have to deal with me. And yes, I do believe he is manipulating Thor in that scene, but I think the key with Loki is that, like an Aes Sedai in the Wheel of Time, which probably means nothing to you, Michael, but he's he's always telling the truth um, most of the time. There are times where I think he does lie, but I think Loki, most of the time, uses the truth to manipulate the situation. Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's how, you know, because Loki's a trickster and so on, you know, you get the most effective lies are the ones that are mostly the truth, you know? You just, right. you leave out sufficient details and get people to go to the, follow their own conclusions, so. Right. And I know, I'm just going to, I'm going to wax wonderfully about Loki for the next few minutes. I'm sorry uh, <laughs> if you're not a Loki fan. Uh, the next thing to me uh is the relationship between Loki, Thor, and Thor's friends. And I think it's very clear in the movie that these people, the Warriors 3 and the Lady Sif, are Thor's friends. Yes, I think that's very clear. They're not Loki's friends. I've only seen the movie twice. Because let me tell you, my first, yeah, 
my my first assumption should things go wrong and someone say there is a betrayer among my circle of friends is never going to think it's never going to be Michael Gabriel betrayed me <laughs> you know <laughs> it may be that you betrayed me but that's not going to be my first thought right. whereas these people's first thought their first thought is Loki has betrayed us all <laughs> which I'm is like, yeah <laughs> and, and that's the kind of thing where even if you even if you're someone who has a reputation for being a trickster and so on, there's one thing between, like, oh, that was a prank, or thinking that, yeah, b- b- going, I mean, unless Loki has a history of actually doing really detrimental things, which is not the idea that I got, so, right. yeah. Right, and I don't think it is the idea you're supposed to get. Um My, another point is the whole Frost Giant thing. Loki discovers he is adopted. Um... And he's not just adopted. It's not like he's from another Asgardian family, you know? He's like he adopted, is a different, adopted. <laughs> he, he is from a different species. He is from, he says, at one point he says, so I am the monster we tell our kids about, you know, like the monster of nightmares. That, I, I, it's, that is Loki's entire struggle in this movie. Why does he want to destroy the Frost Giants? Why does he kill his biological father? It is because he wants to be an Asgardian with all of his being. All he wants is Odin to be proud of him. That's all he wants. And his, in his mind, he thinks the way I can do this is, one, get rid of the monster. And if they're all gone, that means they're all gone and I'm not one of them anymore. Right, because and, there's no longer a group of people for me to be associated with, essentially. Right. And, and two, to prove to dad, I'm just as good as Thor, because Thor is the warrior. So if I can defeat the frost giants when Thor couldn't, because uh, at the beginning, you know, Thor and all of his friends, including Loki, do go to uh, Jotun, to Jotunheim, I'm sorry, right. to, uh, to, de- to defeat the frost giants, and they fail. Um, so if he could do that when Thor couldn't, that is amazing. And, and just, I'm sorry, I really love this movie, guys. So, uh, hang on, so one thing, just before we get to too stop. far past it, um, is, you know, earlier you were talking about when you first see the two of them interacting and you see that Loki's the thinker and Thor is the, is the doer, that is actually something that plays on, it, it, it's intentionally, it's presented in that way, not just to show you who they each are, but also plays on sort of the thing that a lot of us have, which is, we don't like it when people who are people try to be overly simplistic about what is right and what is wrong, just go and act forward without thinking about it sort of thing. So it almost, it works to get us on Loki's side in that little bit. Like it's an effective bit there because, because it, you know, I get frustrated even if there is a clear right and wrong for somebody who just reacts instantaneously instead of thinking about it. It's like, wait a minute, let me, let me think about what I'm about to do or what just happened and make sure that things are clear rather than just acting on it willy-nilly and 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 it's the thing is well you know even if it it, thor can get and does get if in the comics and in the movie into a lot of trouble for that and he should indeed (laughs) so uh, and i think that's the that's the lesson to me of the uh what loki was trying to teach thor with the uh the coronation uh disaster right right um, minus the fact that two Asgardian did die in yes. that because uh, they were in the throne room. Uh, but 
Thor just rushes into the situation, even though Loki tries to talk him out of it. Yes, he does it in a way to manipulate Thor to go. But if you were just a stander by listening to it, you know, not knowing that Loki is purposefully pushing Thor's buttons, you would think this is a terrible idea. <laughs> and clearly, <laughs> you, know? you know, and that's the point is like he's basically playing on the fact that Thor is a big baby and needs to learn to chill. <laughs> and uh, oh, that was right. not an intended and- pun. I'm sorry, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, like, you know, and it's the kind of thing where clearly he knows what buttons to push for his brother, but those buttons shouldn't be pushable for the guy who is going to be king, you know? Right. And I think part of the lesson here was Loki did want Thor to go to Jotunheim in order to see what a disaster this would be. And for a point, it was almost like Thor learned that lesson until, until that one line, which was, you know, run away, little princess, yeah. which, it, you know, if the Frost Giants didn't want this war, why did they say it? But Loki knew it was lost there. And then another thing I'd like to point out in that scene um, is that Loki does his best to defend his brother and to – Loki is clearly a follower in this situation. He has accepted that his brother is going to be king. He's trying to teach him a lesson, but he's not saying – he says, we need to leave right now. Let's go. But when Thor starts the fight, Loki joins in. And then when Thor goes overboard, Loki's reaction is, we need to go. Your friends are dying. Like, uh, <laughs> Yes, it, it clearly, like, it, he realizes he's in deeper than he wanted to be. And this was not at all what, what he wanted to happen. Like, it, it, it right. was very much a, he made an ill, uh, an ill thought out, used an, an Use an opportunity to teach his brother a lesson that he probably shouldn't have done the way he did, in much the same way that I am sure I have taken it upon myself to teach my younger brother lessons when I really should have left it up to my parents. Um, not right. any time in recent memory, but I am absolutely certain I did plenty of times when I was younger. And, you know, that that's essentially, you know, Loki is playing the role of the older brother who is trying to act like a parent and really shouldn't. And what gets me there is Loki in that situation, he's really looking out for Thor's friends, which is always hurts me because, because when, yes. when, Thor, when Loki's like, we must go and Thor's like, then go. Loki's holding his own. He's not in any dire situation here. He's a master magician. He's doing pretty good. Thor's doing pretty good. But Thor's friends are not. Yeah. And Loki sees that and he's trying to rein in his brother because he knows he's the only one there who can. Um and it's it just it hurts me that Thor's friends so reject Loki. But we've all been in that situation, I feel like. Well, not, maybe not everyone, but this is a clear delineation between Thor, the jock, the popular kid who has all the friends, and Loki, the outsider, who is not those things. Right. Um, is the person who has plenty of merits that could be extremely valuable and plenty of things that are better than the person who's being looked up to. And he feels that all of those values are getting overlooked. And that is, right. that's a big deal. Um, and it it's, it's the kind of thing which you can, even if, like, while you go, when you later find out that he caused all this, like, you're still like, oh, that was dumb. But you can understand, like, you can understand why, why he did it, even if you're like, wow, well, well, that was really stupid, Loki. Like, you know, right. it, it, it's the, exactly what we're talking about with the core of the sympathetic villain, which is, the 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 thing that makes them start to fall to villain status is more of a they make a decision 
like where you should have been able to refuse. It's not that the but the thought the fact that the thought occurred to them is not really shocking in the slightest. So. Yeah, and I, I think the line that really clinches Loki for me is at the end when he is facing off with Thor, uh, facing off with Thor, mind you, and crying. If you look closely enough, um, because I, I part of me really thinks at this point, Loki kind of wants Thor to kill him. Um, because that's an easy way out. It not only is it an easy way out, but Loki thinks he's a monster, whether he is or not. He has discovered he's a frost giant and Thor doesn't know that at this point, but Loki's trying to destroy them all. And I think subconsciously part of him is thinking maybe Thor can destroy me and end the frost giant threat once and for all because he's purposefully goading Thor into fighting him but uh, that aside the line that clinches it for me is when Loki says I never wanted the throne I only ever wanted to be your equal and I think that's true I, 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 I don't think true. Loki ever really wanted to be king um, there's, a, there's a great cut scene that once again was cut uh, where when Loki is given the kingship uh, he's kind of surprised like he didn't even realize that was going to happen um Yes, he takes advantage of the opportunity once it's given to him. Cause... But it just wasn't in the car. It was not part of the plan. His plan was, like, pretty clearly his plan was to teach Thor a lesson. It was not right. to be king. Because, honestly, it's probably not the best role for him to be in. Like, right. if Thor it... would learn a little bit, learn a little bit of humility, then Loki would have plenty of say in how things run, you know? And he, because Loki's smart, and Thor would recognize that if he just yes. had some humility. Yes, so. but, but Thor, Loki just wanted to be recognized on par with, um, with Thor. And as someone who has come from a very uh, similar situation uh, where I'm not adopted, <laughs> but uh, I did discover at an advanced stage that uh, my uh, older siblings and I had a different father, um, which wasn't an issue in my family, but my immediate family, but it caused uh, my grandparents to treat us extremely differently. And I never knew why growing up. And I feel like Loki was probably in a very similar situation because everyone probably knew except for Thor, you know, uh, and Loki, but Heimdall knew. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, you know, I, if Thor comes back, I mean, Odin comes back from a battle with a little baby. Uh, yeah. Everyone in Asgard knew except possibly the kids nearer to his age. And in the comics, uh, it's more clear that everyone knew, um, including Loki and Thor. But they went with a different uh, approach for the movie. Um, so I imagine he did get treated differently and he didn't understand why. And that is hard. And so you try to work hard to be viewed equally to that person because you don't understand why you're not viewed equally. Right. Um, but nothing you do makes you equal and you don't get it. Uh, so that was what Loki was working towards. And then all this other crazy stuff got thrown in there. You know, he got to be king. Uh, you know, he discovered he was a frost giant. He kind of had a psychotic break. Um, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Um, but yeah, and you know, the end, I cry a lot of the times when I watch this movie. At the end, when um, Tom Hiddleston is an amazing actor, I just want to throw that out there. Uh, when he says, I could have done it, Father, I could have done it for you, for all of us. And he says it not in his, like, I'm a grown up Loki voice. He says it like, my heart is breaking, and his voice cracks. Like, and he sounds really young at that scene. And uh, it's because. He's in that moment a son, not 
a god, you yes. know, not uh, an evil villain. He is a son trying to say, I did this for you, dad. And dad says, no, <laughs> I, I don't approve of what you did. Um, it, and Loki lets go because he knows there's, he didn't, you know, that, that's the point. That's the point where he could have gone from being, he could have been redeemed right there. You know, like he could have been like, I messed up dad. You know, that this is Asgard. That that's the level of mess up I think they expect in Asgard. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I, I mean Thor started a war for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that Loki could have come back from this. But he but probably instead, could have. It might have been a, it's not like it would have been all sunshine and roses, but he no. he would have been able to come back and with due time. Right. You know, well, I mean, I think, I think at the end of the Avengers, it's clear that Loki still could come yeah. back. Because once again, in Asgard, the level of messing up is not quite the same as it is. But I think that's also part of what makes Loki great, right? Because he could be redeemed. He's not going to be. <laughs> and actually, um, well, just when they talk about with the previews that we've seen for where they're taking the next cycle, Thor 2 and eventually Avengers 2, maybe... Uh, it does seem like they're going they're going that route where hopefully they're going to try and actually bring him back and he might mess it up again, but maybe not as bad, you know. Yeah. So, um, well, we'll we could see. talk about my predictions for where Loki's character is going. Um, you know, part of me does want him to be redeemed. I I do want him to be good again. Um, the other part of me is like, no, Loki is a supervillain. Uh, if I want good Loki, I'll read my comics and read Kid Loki and cry. Um, cause that's what you do when you read journey into mystery, you cry. Um, but yeah, so I've probably talked enough about my love of Loki. I super empathize with Loki. It was a life changing moment for me. Um, I wrote a six post blog extravaganza yes, about <laughs> how, how Loki changed my life. Not, not even joking guys. I I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> well, and so this is actually, so since we want to kind of shift away from, uh, from Loki. Thor because, and, and Loki, because, you know, otherwise Mandy will talk forever. I will. Um, we can use the, like what I thought, even when I first watched the movie, I mean, I enjoyed it and I thought it was Shakespearean almost. And just yes. the approach that it took to the family, because that was the focus was this interaction. Like Loki, Loki was basically the point of the movie. Um, his, Indeed. It is, not a, it is not a superhero origin story. It no, is a villain origin story. It very story. much is. It's all about Loki's arc. And when you do that, though, it, it drives home how poorly it can be done in other circumstances. So I'm going to bring up an example that we barely touched on earlier. Um, but you actually mentioned uh, at one point that, like, you know, Vader, is, Darth Vader, for instance, is he's just a downright bad guy. And that's true in the like in the original Star Wars trilogy, like he is a, he's an other, you know, like he is, yeah. he's just this dark force, which at the end, he's sort of, he comes back, but you don't know that that's all there, right? Like you don't, when you first are presented to him, you don't know. Um, of course the emperor is never redeemed, but he helps, Vader helps in the end. And that is actually the main, like whatever all the qualitative issues are with Star Wars episodes one, two, and three, the main failure of that trilogy is how they failed at the end of episode three to make Darth Vader a sympathetic villain, because right. that's what Which they needed the to do. Which was the whole purpose of that situation. It's exactly. The <laughs> whole purpose of the prequels was to make you completely understand and empathize, sympathize with 
how Darth Vader made those decisions, and they failed. And they failed, and they had the material there, and they set it up, even with as poorly plotted as episodes one and two were. In episode three, the real part that they messed up on was just, it was almost like a switch flipping, you know? And it was just like, boom, bad guy. It was like, that's not how you make him make us sympathetic to his plight. Like, that's... That's not how you do it. Like, every... Any time he went and he went on a rant and whatnot, even the things when you... Even the parts where you thought the Jedi were wrong, he was a baby when he... when he, right. Like, when he whined about it. It wasn't like a, oh, he's making good points. He's, you know, he's being frustrated at every turn by the Jedi being old and stodgy and, you know, being opposed to to embracing life and so on and so forth. Like, it didn't make the perfectly reasonable argument that was there to be made and then just have him fall to the dark side with a few bad choices. It was bad choice after bad choice after bad choice from, like, you know, the beginning of his teenage years on. It was just... And then... But even then, like, it was almost like you could see the sort of, I'm a good guy who's being frustrated, and then all of a sudden it was just evil. Right. And it's just like, it's, it's not a... It was like you see him kind of them trying to make it seem like he's on the verge of falling the whole time, and then he's just... It's like a cliff instead of a, oh, there's where it happens, and he just keeps going, and he's not turning back when he could. He's not turning back. Like, Loki, there were opportunities to turn back with Loki, and there was all this, like, you could understand his frustration, and they just did such a poor job of all of that with Anakin Skywalker. So, Indeed. And that is, to me, uh, I, you know... We were young when the prequels came out. Yes. Um, I was really excited about them. Um, in many ways, I am still, to this day, blinded to the Phantom Menace's um, failures because I cannot disassociate it from my sixth grade excitement. Um, <laughs> but when I watched two and three, you know, both in high school, that was ninth and twelfth grade for me, uh, it was the biggest disappointment because I wanted so bad to sympathize with Darth Vader because I did you know after watching one and just one and then watching four five and six which you know of course I'd already seen way in advance of one of course I'm a huge Star Wars Star Wars is my number one fandom uh, just for you guys who are listening to know (laughs) Um, I could see this I was like no wonder Darth Vader turned at the end all he ever wanted was a family like that's all he ever wanted. And then he discovered Luke was his son. And then the emperor was torturing his son in front of him. Of course he turned on the emperor. All he ever wanted was a family, you know? And then they completely dropped the ball. Exactly. Two and three. Of course, one was not a great movie. Um, there are many writing reasons why it was poorly done. But I think it set up an interesting situation that even if one was a bad movie, there were still... There was still hope that two and three could have been good if they had gotten a better writer. Right, because one was basically just telling you where he came from, which can be used to inform his character later on. But it doesn't. But it's not the arc of actually like of the important events. Like nothing, no important events really happen in episode one. But it does at least give you Anakin's origin. So it's almost like if if the if episodes two and three had been scripted well, you would have been able to kind of see his origins throughout his speech. You, Indeed. You couldn't really, but that's a whole separate issue. <laughs> but um, but it, it's really just it. It's, the fall was done so poorly that they failed to make Anakin Skywalker a sympathetic villain, which it's just a, such a bummer because it's so his turn at the end of episode six is so significant. And so the prequels fail at 
being what they needed to be. They're nothing but a series of events rather than actual, you know, emotional setup for the culmination of, at the end of the original trilogy. Right. And, and while we're talking about uh, villains who get redeemed, uh, I do want to mention, even though I'm not entirely convinced he is completely a sympathetic villain, uh, I think in many ways he's just a sympathetic antagonist, but uh, I think he, if he hadn't been redeemed, he could have quickly gone the villainous route. Uh, Zuko. Okay, so Zuko is on my list as well. He was the next person on my list. And I, we've discussed this a little bit before. I do genuinely think he was a sympathetic villain because he was dark and moody and he wanted to do the wrong things. Like, it was not just a, I'm doing this, I'm being made to do this. Like, he would make the wrong calls over and over because he right. thought it was what he wanted. And so, right. he, so he did. So I, I would I say he was I... a sympathetic villain. But almost, but obviously he, was, he wasn't so far gone that he couldn't come back and... You know, he did. So, right? Did, did we did we state Zuko is from Avatar: The Last Airbender? We did not. So Zuko okay. is from Avatar: The Last Airbender, which Mandy and I are very big fans of. The cartoon. Um, yes. Let's be clear. It is a cartoon, but I think <laughs> Mandy agrees with me. Oh, yeah. oh, so yeah. The the movie is called The Last Airbender because James Cameron had already gotten the rights to the name Avatar. But, uh, but I have not even seen the movie. I've heard it that it's terrible. terrible. <laughs> um. So yes, I think to me, what clinches Zuko. As a villain, um, because I knew from episode one, like I knew nothing about this show. I had never seen, I knew nothing about where it was going. All I knew about this show was one, Michael Gabriel liked it. <laughs> and two, I read a blog post that argued it was one of the best television shows ever. Which I agree with entirely. But they didn't really explain what it was about. They were just stating like, they were describing themselves. And they were like, and I think Avatar The Last Airbender is the best television show ever. And this was like a 35-year-old guy. Yes. So I was like, oh my goodness, maybe I should watch this. So knowing nothing about the plot, I didn't look it up. I, all I knew was it was a cartoon that came on Nickelodeon. That was all I knew. And I sat down and I watched episode one. And from episode one, I was like, Zuko is going to be redeemed. Right. And, and that's, um, I, I don't feel bad spoiling that for people at all, ever, because it's just so clear to anyone who's yes. above a certain age. Like, and that's the thing that makes Avatar The Last Airbender so good. And it's actually something that I take issue a lot of the time when people talk about predictability being a negative about things is I don't think predictability really matters if it's execute if things are executed really really well right. and, and in I this case you know exactly what's going to happen to the entire series like you know as far as character arcs and so on right. basically from day from you know the first few times you see ep- characters interact because they're playing on tropes and expected behaviors that we all know from other stories but it's all about how those individual characters get defined and how their changes happen that and, yeah and I and I think what for me going along that line what makes it almost amazing is the view the the people writing this know that any half thinking person probably over the age of 12 knows zuko is going to be redeemed right but they I really thought he was going to be redeemed by the end of season 1 I did and too it, I totally and it didn't did. happen and then I was like well he's going to be redeemed by the end of season 2 and it didn't happen and um uh Spoiler alert, spoiler, <laughs> spoiler. Uh, Michael, remind me, is it at the end of season two or halfway through three where Aang gets electrocuted? Oh, uh, that is at the end of, an, uh, of a season because there's the, there's the arc where he has issues. Like they, you wake, he wakes up with hair after a, right. um, okay, I believe so that's at the end of two. To me, that was the clincher that this was like, 
Zuko is not just a sympathetic antagonist. He is a villain because that was the point where he made the wrong choice. Yes. It was a very clear, he and that's, could that's have very why. very easily sided with Aang. I expected him to side with Aang. It was and made instead to the, he sided with Azula. And that's the thing is, <laughs> at that point, it was very much like he was given the opportunity to easily choose the right side. Easily. Like, easily. Like, and, it was easier to choose the right side than the wrong side at that right. point. He had been given the knowledge. He, in fact, by choosing the by choosing to side with his sister, he disappointed the one person in his life who, who had, always had been a expectations yeah. for him. And then they made it last so much longer. I mean, Zuko doesn't get redeemed until, like, what, four episodes from the end? Pretty I mean, late. And that's, the, and that's the, the amazing thing about it, too, is we're expecting it, like, you know, from pretty early from on to the show. <laughs> you're, you're expecting it from day one, and it still doesn't seem ridiculous that it drags on because no. it's just like you can see his mental turmoil right or his right. emotional turmoil like you totally you see it and that's why he's just such a sympathetic like it, it, the sympathy is just done so well there you're just so sympathetic to it with with his I, and it was never wants. at the point where i was frustrated like yes i was frustrated with zuko as a character because i wanted him to be good but I understood why he sided with Azula. You weren't frustrated but, with the writers. You're frustrated right. with the character, which are right. two very, very distinct different things. things. Um, and that entire thing was done so well. I mean, Zuko is the villain. He is the personification of the Fire Lord, who is this villain you don't see at all. It, right? The Fire Lord is very much the epitome of... He's one of my other examples for the Force of Nature style villain. Like, right. He's off in the distance. You, you don't see him for the... Right. Almost the entire series. Zuko is the face of the Fire Lord because they wait a long time to introduce Azula. And from day one with Azula, you pretty much accept that she's insane. Right. She's a Joker-esque sort of. Right. She she is the crazy. uh, The Fire Lord is the force of nature. Uh, Azula is the mentally insane, criminally insane uh, bad guy. And Zuko is the one that you're like, he is the face of reason behind this war effort almost like you could see why an entire people would follow the fire lord it's because of people like zuko right you know exactly and it's it's heartbreaking and it's so well done and this is a kid's show and the thing about this too is what you (laughs) what you learn in the very very first intro to the first episode is this is the story like the uh, the main character ang he's frozen for it's a hundred years right Yes, 100 years. So he's frozen for 100 years. So this is a war that has basically been going on for 100 years. And so Zuko is a perfect channel into the mindset of this country that has been trying, attacking others for 100 years and has demolished two societies and is working on demolishing another. You know, like, it's the sort of thing where you can understand how their whole side thinks and feel bad for them, you know, for many of them. Not all of them, of course. I mean, there's all kinds of metaphors to Nazi Germany, and there's, you know, you have the people who you generally feel bad for, and you understand why they think the way they do, and then you have some people who are the downright, you know, no, there's just no, there's no understanding that, you know? But, yeah. Uh, you know, and for me, as a person, I always had a really hard time with villains, uh, in general, uh, I, I knew people who really loved villains, and I didn't get it. And it was, what, the past year that I watched Avatar and <laughs> Thor for the first time, and it's completely changed my perspective. Um, because Zuko is... I mean, Zuko is my favorite Avatar character, and he is the bad guy. <laughs> and it's, it's, 
it's astonishing how well done that is. Um, it's it, it is extremely well done, and it's and the the amazing thing is like that's probably not even the best part of the show. Like no, <laughs> like it, it's incredibly well done, and the rest of the show is basically up to that level. Yes. Um, so, but going off, of, so continuing on this topic though, like I, I think it's a really interesting thing because we have the sympathetic villains, and a lot of the time they do play sort of as the the face of, much like Darth Vader, if they had pulled off the prequels well, Darth Vader would essentially be turned into a sympathetic villain if you watched the movies in episode order, rather than initially just a villain, and then you're like, oh, wow, that was an interesting bit at the end. Um, so And so, like, Darth Vader and Zuko essentially play sort of similar roles in that they are the public face of the, you know, the real bad. Um... But at the same time, there's lots of... I find it really interesting that in some sorts of, in some versions of media, you almost have people who sort of... They bridge it, or they might actually start off as a bad guy, but through... Or as a villain who seems just completely evil, but through presenting little bits and pieces of detail later on, you become sympathetic to them. And I think that that's also a really clever piece of, uh, way of telling stories. Whereas Loki and Zuko... You kind of you're sympathetic with them before you really know anything about them. Like Zuko, you pretty much understand his situation right his off the angst. bat. <laughs> yeah, his his angst, and then uh, and Loki, like you see it happen. You see him yes. become a villain. So then you have the others who start off as villains that just look flat out bad, and then you become sympathetic with them, whether they become redeemed or not. Um, and there's one example that you are not familiar with. Uh, it's from uh, most. People who know me well know that I am obsessed with the Mass Effect series of video games. And in them, um, there is a group... In the very first game, there, there's a... It's essentially a pro-human terrorist group. Um, that is... They're called Cerberus, and they're nothing significant whatsoever in the first game. They're just side quests. Like, if you played straight through the main game, you would probably barely even have heard their name. Um, and you just see them doing terrible things in the name of humanity... Um, they they hate all other uh, all other alien species and they definitely are a human human first species. Then in uh, in in the second of the trilogy of video games, you actually get into contact with you're you're basically put under the wing of the leader of that force. He's called the Elusive Man, and he is actually he's voiced by uh, Martin Sheen, which is pretty amazing. But he he just he comes off as just a despicable manipulative and he is despicable and manipulative and he is in charge of this terrorist group and you totally like you are essentially on his side out of sheer necessity you um he's the only person willing to fund what you need to do in order to save the galaxy because no one else is listening to you but you you don't trust him at all the entire time like there's never that level of trust you never think anything of him more than just he is a he is an evil person. I know he is using me for his own ends. I will turn on him the moment that I am able to. You know, it, it's a very clear sort of scenario. Um, at the very end of the third of the third game, you start to realize there was more going on there. But if you're someone who's obsessive like me and has been reading all the comics and read his backstory and stuff, you actually start to feel really bad for the guy. Like he's still clearly made some bad calls, and he's still a bad guy. But his motivations, like, his motivations are very much to make sure humanity survives, and he was privy to information that other people weren't, that motivated him along those lines, and then there was some other pretty serious stuff in the play that 
took some things out of his hands. In the end, he totally could have turned away, and you actually see other people who were put into similar situations as he was, and didn't go down the same path. But if you actually read all the all the extended stuff that they put between and play every little bit of side story in the series, you feel bad for him at the end. Um, so, I, and I think that that's a really clever way of of doing things. Is this entire time you're just like, nope, gonna ignore him. He's he's a pretty terrible person. And then at the very end, you're like, well, crap. That's why that happened that way. <laughs> I, I on a similar route. Um, the, sorry, the, the, this is a Wheel of Time reference. That's okay. Um, I, so in the Wheel of Time, you have your. In many ways, at first, it seems like your stereotypical hero uh, coming of age, uh, save the world from evil force of nature bad guys, and the bad guys are at this point evil force of nature bad guys. Um, but as you go on same way you learn more about how they came to be that way and it's very much a you discover these people were not born evil right um you know there are reasons for they are, why they are the way they are and um especially as uh i don't know I, I don't know how much i can say that's a spoiler but especially as hero our main hero um gains knowledge of uh, how these villains became the way they are, he discovers in many ways it's his fault um, <laughs> because of choices he made in the far past. Um, like, he, he says to himself at different times, like, if I had just reached out a hand here instead of ramping the competition, like back when they were friends or whatever, um, you know, or if I had just done this or that. And yes, you know, you cannot control why someone else goes evil. It is not Thor's fault that Loki went evil. Right. Right. Um, but, but he helped it. He, he helped, helped it to make it. He, he he helped it along, or you could say he made it easier for Loki to become evil. You right. know, you could say that. And at the end of the Wheel of Time, when you face off between um, Hero and then uh, Ultimate Personification of Evil via um, your, your true force of nature, Evil, uh, but who is personified in a person who is not a true force of nature evil. Uh, you, you realize that all this person really wants at this point is to die. <laughs> <laughs> like, and not just die. He just wants to be obliviated. Like, he does not want a continued life after death. Or this is the Wheel of Time, so everyone is reborn. Um, so he wants the cycle to end for himself. He wants the cycle to end for himself. And if he unleashes true force of nature evil... Um, and true force of nature, evil wins. That's what will happen. Ah. Uh, so, of course, that's why he's on the side of the bad guys, you know. And uh, it's just little things like that where it's like, yes, this person is completely evil at this point. Completely evil. Like I cannot sympathize with him anymore as so- he is. But I, I, as things are revealed on their journey, you can see why they made those decisions, and then you can even sympathize with certain people's causes in the end, even if you don't agree. But so this is actually, this is, uh, it's this common saying that I've seen attributed to many other people, to many, many people, but it's the, every villain is the hero of his own story. Yes. Line. And that is very much like, I don't actually think that's true in fiction in real life, maybe, but in fiction, you do have the force of it. Like Emperor Palpatine did not think that he was a good guy. When, right. uh, like, no, he wanted power and that's what he, that's what he got. Like that, that was not, he did not think he was doing anybody else favors. That was not the point. 
Um, and and it's the same with Morden in uh, in Wheel of Time. You know, he knows he's not doing anyone any favors. Right. He knows he's working for the personification of evil. But you go to Lord of the Rings, it's the same thing. You know, you go to. Yeah. I, you know, so, so you've got those, you go to the Joker and the Dark Knight, he, he definitely doesn't think that he's doing any good, like, yeah. anything like that. But for sympathetic villains, that is, like, they do not see themselves as the villains per se. They might clearly be one, but that they don't see themselves as one, and it's a matter of whether the reason that they don't is something that's at all, like, that you can actually sympathize with or not. Right, um, right. Loki thinks he truly deserves to be ahead of Thor now. You know, right. originally he just wanted to be Thor's equal, but as of the end of the Avengers, um, you know, he kind of deserves like he thinks, man, I've been gypped in life. Uh, Thor's gotten everything. Uh, everyone likes him. Uh, I'm just taking what I deserve, essentially. Right. Yeah. I'm taking what I deserve. Uh, you know, same with Zuko. Zuko thinks he's the hero. Uh, he really does. He thinks this is what he has to do to be the hero of the Fire Nation. Uh, which, in, which in the way that his entire nation has been brainwashed to think is true is true (laughs) indeed and uh, then he discovers well first what i think is interesting about zuko is he discovers he's not the hero and keeps on that path and i think that's that decision when he sides with azula that's the moment he realizes i am not the hero of this story uh but I don't. I I can't care about that. It's, it's um, very much the uh, this thing that people do all the time in real life, um, and it's done. It's I love it when I see it in characters. Is people confuse what they originally wanted from the things that they associated with it, right. um, and in that case, <sighs> Zuko wants his dad to be proud of him. Right, which <laughs> you know he wants his dad to be proud of him, but but at the same time, like he had sort of conflated the. Conflated, confused. I, I I confuse the words conflate and confuse. That's pretty. <laughs> um, uh, he he had gotten to the point where he was very much. He wants his dad to be proud of him, and he kind of made that choice. But it's almost like he had associated being the hero and his dad being proud of him as the same thing. And it's like, well, now what? And and as he had associated him to be the same thing for such a long time that he couldn't just make a decision until his hand was forced and clearly made right. the wrong one, which is just, uh, right. that just thinking about that scene, uh, it hurt me. It like hurts. at the time it hurt me so bad because I wanted Zuko to be good so much. And that was a decision of a bad decision. Uh, yes. he chose the side on the side of bad. Uh, and it, it hurt a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, other sympathetic villains, um, I think, you know, in, in Harry Potter, I, I think, I'm not sure how much characters are sympathetic villains versus heroes confused as villains and people who aren't truly villains. Uh, yeah, I, I'm thinking about if any of the Death Eaters really are sympathetic villains, and I'm not really sure. I think the that- closest... Is, is Malfoy, uh, Draco yeah. Malfoy, yeah, Draco not Malfoy. Lucius. That's a good point. And yes. that's because the reason he's making bad decisions, and he knows he's making bad decisions by the point of, I would say, book six, uh, he knows he's on the wrong side. Um, and the reason why he stays on the wrong side is because of his family. And, and I, think I think that's, that's totally understandable. <laughs> I think he's clearly on the wrong side and would make those decisions early on. And he, though, is aware enough of the world that he would make the other decisions if it was in his hands to do so later on but but it takes time for that to happen so you'd almost say that like early on 
like when things first blow up, I, he might have initially chosen it, but right. then pretty quickly he would have chosen otherwise if not forced into it. And clearly by the end, like we see that he is being forced into it, you know, right. and that, that's a whole different thing. So, um, right. But I, I, you know, the reason why I struggle with actually putting him in the sympathetic villain category is because I'm not sure in the end. I'm not sure the Malfoys truly qualify as villains yeah, so much as more of it people who are looking out for their own skin. Um, I, I think one of the greatest scenes in the movie that to me uh, personifies the Malfoys is when they get Draco back and they just kind of walk away from the fight. That's, that's a good <laughs> point, actually. That's a very good point. So, yes, uh, Lucius Malfoy is a villain. He is a bad guy. But I think they're supposed to represent those of us who just go along with... Uh, you know, like the Nazis who say, I was just following orders. Right. Uh, it's very much the, uh, you know, if no one, uh, no one came for the gypsies and so on and so forth. So it's like, you know, well, when they come for me, who's going to, who's going to speak up for me? That, right. that line that I can never remember the whole quote, but it's a... I, I agree. It was first they came for, you know... That's the one, yeah. The, the, whatever, the Jews, and I wasn't one. And then they came for the gypsies, and I, and I wasn't one. And then they came for the, you know, whatever, and I wasn't one. And or it was, yeah, I, and first they came for the Jews, and I said nothing because I was not a Jew. Right. Or, and so on. And so then they came for me, and there was no one left to, 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 right. to speak for me. So, um, yeah, it, it, and it's, it's very much, I think you're right. I think that that's the, the line of the drawing with that. Maybe towards the end, maybe so for, for Lucius early on, he's clearly a villain, Clearly, uh, a villain. but his, his wife and Draco are probably more in that, that sort of being a bad influence by doing nothing, like or right. doing wrong by doing nothing. Um, they're right. in that camp probably basically the entire time. Like it's very much a, well, the, you know, my dad is, or my husband is doing this, is doing this. So I'm just gonna go along with it. Right. Um, and and then there's, you know, Snape, who is not a villain. Not at all. Yeah. It, He's an antagonist but, at time, almost. Like, but but if, a very minor one. If a story was set uh, before Snape's redemption, he would be a sympathetic villain. Yes, absolutely. Right? Like, if a story was set in those years leading up to... Hair, to Lily and James's death, he would be the definition of a sympathetic villain. Yeah, absolutely. You completely understand why he is the way he is. And, and but, that's, a, that's actually a really good way of pointing out, too, where just because you can understand someone's motives doesn't necessarily make them sympathetic either, because he and Voldemort himself, they have basically the same exact situation, whereas Snape would have been sympathetic and Voldemort, Voldemort would not, because right. it's just the way that they thought about it was different. Right. Right, um, exactly. Voldemort, Voldemort's like the child who uh, tortures small animals. Yes. You know, uh, whereas... I mean, he's a, he's, he's a psychopath, right? right. Whereas Where, Snape, Snape was yeah. the child who got tortured. Yes. And, and so that, that's a very different thing. And what I always... This is going way off topic. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, what I always thought was interesting about Snape uh, in Harry Potter was that Snape and Harry Potter are essentially the same person at an early age. Yep. Um, if you look at Snape as a child, he is Harry Potter. Um, I mean, not in the sense that he is expected to... He's going through the same life situation. Save everyone. Terrible home lives. Uh, you know, there, there's no hope for them. The cool kids don't like him. Um, you know, because let's face it, Draco was the cool kid early on. Um, and it's, it's 
an interesting dilemma. And I really like that about both that and Star Wars because I feel like Luke and Anakin are both uh, mirrors of each other who made bad decisions uh, and Luke made the right decisions in some scenarios. And in other scenarios, he didn't and he still came out okay. But that's an interesting thing about Harry Potter that I'm sure we'll talk about at another time and don't need to go too much in detail right. here. Um, so another sympathetic villain, Michael. Um, actually, my so I have an example. I wanted to kind of throw things off a little bit and talk about someone who is when you understand they're sympathetic to the viewer or reader but they intentionally set themselves up as otherwise does that make make sense at all to you i can explain this okay so uh this is in dune but it's not the first dune book it's really in the ones that you don't need to read uh they're in uh so the the rest of the original frank herbert series is not nearly as good as the original book um, they're non-essential reading, and in fact, I think they diminish the original book. When you go back and reread the original after having read the books two through six or seven, however many there were, but um, the main character Paul uh, uh, Paul Atreides in in Dune has a son named Leto, who he names after his father, and that only becomes important in the second book and on, and he becomes the God Emperor Leto, and this is like a huge. You know, this is a big part of the entire series going on from from there on uh, chronologically. And he actually, it's very interesting because the way they do things is they actually set it up so he sets himself up as the enemy of humanity in order to strengthen humanity. Uh, And he, and it's like, there's actually a line of dialogue where it's very kind of offhanded almost. And you totally see that he has looked into the future and sees every single implication and does not want to do it. But he thinks that not doing it would be the cowardly route because it is best for humanity if he sets himself as this other force that humanity will then grow to be stronger over a long period of time. Like humanity in its opposition to him will grow to be stronger. And once they finally do beat him, humanity will be much better off because of it. And I, I kind of loved that. It's the, um, it's that the person who does wrong for the greater good almost, which it's, it's like a, you know, they're willing to take on the evil persona even if they really don't want to do it because no one else will and they almost see that they think it's necessary. Um, blended along with, you know, the whole thought of the only thing that will unite humanity will be having an other force against it sort of a thing. So um, so it was a really neat thing and I basically told you the entirety of the interesting bit for all of the original <laughs> Dune books after, after Dune, after the first one. But that is essentially, like... That's the plot of the ne- the rest of the series is Leto sees the future and he's like, you know what? It's not going to be good for humanity if we don't get stronger because there's going to be something from elsewhere at some point. And I need to make sure that the race is strong enough to fight against it. So uh, how can I make everybody hate me for a really, 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 really long time? And he lives for thousands of years and does it. So, and... Um, and in the end, you basically get the impression that, yep, he was right. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's, and I, I really like that because no one knows that. Like, there are literally two characters in the entire series who, who understand what he's doing, and only one after, like, the second book is over. And, and it's, so it's almost like you f- sort of feel bad for him because of it, but, the, but no one else, like, he's not at all sympathetic to anyone else, no one else can really ever understand what his his motivations are because it's just not within the minds of mortal humans in this universe to get it. Right. You know? So 
Um, so that was a, a sort of interesting thing where it's sort of bridging the definitions. Indeed, because he purposefully makes himself a villain at that point. Yes. And, and, it, and his motivation is basically a valid one. Like, his fear is essentially humanity will get wiped out in the future if I don't do this. Right. But right. the amount, the number of evil things he has to do, like downright bad and evil things he has to do, is kind of ridiculous in order to accomplish it. Um, right. But you also get the idea that because of how much he knows, he really did have to do all of it. So it was, it was almost like an all or nothing right. sort it's, of scenario. It's the ends justify the means argument. Exactly. It's the ends justify the means argument in like the, one of the very few scenarios where I've really bought it at all. <laughs> right. So. It, it, would, it would be like if something was coming and you knew in order to fight it, you had to unite the earth. Right. Right. And you're like, I don't care how we unite the earth. We just have to do it. So in order to unite the earth, you make yourself a villain or an evil dictator or, or something. And everyone unites against you or you conquer the world and unite everyone under you. Which but, is, comes into Watchmen as well. But, but yeah. in fact, in this scenario, it's not only that he had to unite the, the earth to do it or the galaxy to do it. There was exactly one way for him to do it because he yeah. knew that too. Like he had such foresight. Because he knew that, everything. Because he knew everything. He's essentially omniscient at that point. And he knows this is the only way that this can happen. And so he had to do, like, from no one else's perspective, can anything he does be justified, essentially. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating sort of thing, where it's like, the ends justify the means, except that he can't ever actu- actually explain the ends to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of uh, sucks. <laughs> indeed, because now everyone's going to think he's evil. And they do. And he will be in the history books as having been evil and so on and so forth. And uh, that's actually, yeah, uh, that's a good example in Watchmen. They do that too, but they don't at all make the person sympathetic. So, <laughs> Which they <laughs> don't try he's to. he's a like. complete jerk. Yes. Um, so yeah, do you have uh, other examples, whether they're interesting twists or straight up, you know, here's just some other, some other straight up examples that we don't have to go into extreme discussion on or whatever. Your turn. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I have other good examples. Um, an interesting kind of twist, I, I'm not sure it's fully under the definition, is um, in Brent Weeks's Night Angel trilogy is a character named Dorian, who in the first book, he's good. Um, he, he actually might be good all the way through the second book. I, I don't inc- entirely remember. Uh, but he basically, like, in your God King scenario, he can see the future. Um, but at some point he loses his ability to see the future. Um, and he doesn't entirely remember everything. Like he remembers things that were supposed to be like critical points in time, but he can't always remember what the right decision was. Okay. Uh, and he ends up a lot of times making the wrong decision and then eventually becomes like this evil ruler. Um, I, because he makes all the he'll, he'll be like I remember this was a critical point what am I supposed to do um, and almost becomes the antithesis of what he was at the start um, and, and it is a very like sympathetic downfall um, and he does get redeemed in the end well sort he, of <laughs> he goes insane um, he, well he, he regains gains his ability goes insane and kind of saves everyone and kind of dies uh <laughs> It's it's very complicated, but it's a it's a similar situation, um, kind of, and not that he didn't purposely unite people against him, but he made these decisions based off of future knowledge. Ended up making the wrong decisions. Ended up becoming a bad guy, um, and 
it's it's weird because in the first book he was a hero so you were cheering for him and then by the end of the second or third book or whatever you're like oh my goodness <laughs> dorian yeah. became evil somewhere along the way he became evil and you always sympathized with him on the route because you thought he was a hero right yeah and so suddenly he's evil and you're like oh well, and that, so that's a, and that's a good thing, and we I think we've already differentiated this well enough. But it's that whole you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions thing. Indeed, and it's and it, it's very clear that like at some point the people that we're talking about they become evil, like they become a villain. It's not just oh I made the wrong call and it turned out bad, and but my intentions were good. It is I intended good things and eventually started making consistently really downright evil calls. Yes. You know, and that's, uh, yeah, so it's a, it, it's a great, I think it's a very great character type, um, a character archetype, and it can be used to so many great examples, and even when you know that that's what's happening, it doesn't really diminish what can be done with it. Right. Um, because, Whether it's yeah. Loki or Zuko, both of those scenarios, you knew what was going on. Um, I mean, you knew going into Thor, unless you live in a bubble, that Loki is bad, right? Right, because that's Norse mythology. That's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not exactly a, a recent a secret. thing. It's not a secret but, even for the comics. So. Right, so, so they made it interesting. And with Zuko, you, I mean, you knew from day one he was bad. Right. Uh, and they, they still made it interesting. It's still an interesting character. And I think it's an interesting character because we can identify with it. Um, because we've all made bad decisions. Yes. Uh, and we've all been in those scenarios. Uh, maybe not exactly the same. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you want to make your parents proud of you, which is Zuko, right? Like, yes. Zuko and Loki, to a certain extent. <laughs> That's a scenario, unless you're an orphan you can probably identify with. So, you know, in Zuko's case, it's what does that mean if your father is force of nature evil and you want to make him proud of you? Right. Uh, in Loki's case, it's what if there are unattainable obstacles you cannot overcome, <laughs> <laughs> but you want to make your dad proud of you. Um, and, you know... And, and you are smarter than the other than the other party and you can see the, the mistakes he's clearly making, which could be a big problem in the future, and then right. you make a few bad judgment calls on how to deal with those. Right. And, you know, in, in these other examples, like Darth Vader, if he if his fall had been done well, it would have been, I just want to save my family. And what, what kind, I mean, that's an amazingly good intention. Right. <laughs> you know, that's a good, that's, that's a, I hope we all want our families to be safe. Right. Exactly. You know, but because he became obsessed with the idea or you know whatever it was i I think he was supposed to be obsessed with the idea of family and saving his family he didn't really have a motivation they just i'm not even gonna give him the credit of that's what they were trying to get at yeah Um, and i think that's the motivation that makes sense with him being redeemed at the end because of luke right Uh, because he doesn't really know luke all he really needs to know about luke is luke is his son and for darth vader that's enough so his his motivation was family uh which is a motivation we all have um and he became evil so these, these are all, you know, or the Watchmen slash uh, Dune example where it's I want to save the world, even if the guy in Watchmen is a complete jerk and therefore you don't sympathize with him at all. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, well, so, and that, that is more a uh, ends justify the means sort of thing rather than... Right. Yeah. Right. But because of the ends, you understand why right. they did what they did. Um, and I think it teaches us lessons about ourselves. I think it teaches us lessons about other people. 
Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's a great story that even if it's an old one, it is still worthwhile in today's age. And, and to give you, like, because like you said, it teaches us about ourselves, and we touched on this in our first episode, is it's a really, like, it, it's very much a sort of like a, a warning, you know? Well, hey, Loki, him seeing what his brother, like, the negative traits in his brother, like, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But taking it on his own responsibility to do, like, to, to do something about lesson. to teach him a yeah. lesson, that's a bad call. Not taking the opportunity to be like, whoa, I messed up, guys, like, and be, and stubbornly deciding that, you know what, I guess I'm on this path, it's time to take it. Like, also a bad call. And it's the kind of thing where how many of us, like, nobody has never done the stubborn thing where you know you did something wrong and then you just kind of stick to it because it's almost like a, it's a pride scenario where you feel like you have to stick to your guns now. Rather than being like, uh, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's not stick to this, guys. I yeah, mean, like, or let's it's say, like, like, when he had taken the crown, like, when he was given the opportunity to take the crown, he totally could have been like, yeah, um, this was actually my bad, let's try and fix this. You yeah. know, like, like, that's not to say he would have gotten off scot-free, and it's not to say that was an easy decision to make, but it was clearly the right one, and it was an available one. Right. And it would have made things better in the long run for him. <laughs> Indeed. So. Indeed. I, Yes. Um, so yeah, that's. I think that we have touched on this topic pretty well, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I guess we can we can close out this episode. Uh, I if we would like though, we can actually close out properly this time and tell people where to follow us if they would like. Uh, I guess on on Twitter you can find the Trivially Crucial account at Triv Crucial. Uh, it's not Trivially Crucial because that's too long for Twitter apparently, <laughs> as I discovered last week. Um, you can find me at, I have no idea how to, how I pronounce this. And people always ask me in my head, it's Alhim, but that doesn't really, it, it's not a proper pronunciation. It's kind of arbitrary. Um, it's a U H I M. And my explanation is always that long. Uh, and <laughs> Mandy, where can people find you if they want to find uh, you? People can find me on Twitter at, uh, at, at Brown, uh, underscore Aja, which is a uh, Brown, like the color underscore uh, a J A H, which is a Wheel of Time reference. <laughs> All right, sounds good. I think that's uh, that's a wrap for this week. <laughs> <laughs>